Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. We hope you are having a blessed time with family and friends and the church as we round off the season of Advent and move into the Christmas season. In this episode of the podcast, we are starting a new series with James Jordan. This time, he is going to be taking a look at the life of Abraham. A few years ago, we posted his series on the life of Jacob, and that proved to be incredibly helpful and useful to many of you. So we thought we would get the life of Abraham up as well. As always, do take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Especially keep in mind our upcoming intensive course in the month of March, as Peter Lightheart takes a look at Paul and Pauline theology. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan giving the background and context of the life of Abraham. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, and we ask that you bless this time together now. Help us to focus our attention on the wisdom that you have for us. We pray in the name of Christ our King. Amen. We begin today a study in the life of Abraham, and I've given you handouts that give you an overview of the next 12 lessons that I'll teach. And I've punched holes in them, and if you get a three-wing binder or some type of folder or something, I'll have handouts for you each week that we can add to it. The life of Abraham I think we can do in 12 weeks, and this is kind of an overview. Today we'll take up background to the life of Abraham, the early chapters of Genesis, and kind of lead up to it. And We'll also look at themes in the life of Abraham. And then chapter 12, we'll talk about his exodus from Egypt and so forth and so on. So you can see from the outline there. You'll notice that the handouts have got places for you to take notes. There's blanks to be written in and also a place for you to write more notes down if you want. And if something goes by and you don't get it jotted down and you wanted to, put your hand up or I'll give times for questions. Let's look at themes in the story of Abraham, first of all, the themes that we want to look at. Uh, the Bible is very rich in different ideas, concepts, themes, but there are certain themes that stand out in the Abraham story that we could contrast with others. For instance, one of the important themes in the story of Joseph is the garment that Joseph wears. He's given a robe of many colors by his father that's pulled off of him by his brothers. And then he goes and he's given a robe by Potiphar, and that's pulled off by Potiphar's wife. And then he's given a robe by Pharaoh. All of that has meaning. Well, that is not a theme that we'll find in the story of Abraham. The robe of authority and glory is not preeminent. It's not even found at all in the Abraham story. What are some of the important themes that are found in the story of Abraham? Well, the first is land. Land. What is land in the Bible? Why is land important? Each of us would like to own some land and some property. It's valuable. We know that. But in the Bible, what does land have to do with? Well, if we look back at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, we find that land in the Bible has basically three meanings. First of all, land is a place to worship. 
Land gives us a place to worship, a place for a sanctuary, a holy place where we can draw into God's presence and render worship to him. That's seen in Genesis chapter 2, where we find that God planted a garden in the land of Eden. And in that garden, he put two trees where there was going to be some type of sacramental food, the tree of life, and if you ate of it, you would live forever. And the tree of wisdom, or knowledge of good and evil, which they weren't supposed to eat of until they were ready. That was where God would meet with them on the Sabbath day. It was a sanctuary, and they were kicked out of it. And in, in the Bible, we'll find that one of the themes throughout the Bible is the rebuilding of the sanctuary. God provides sanctuaries for his people. He has them build them, and each one of them is, in one symbolic way or another, a picture of the Garden of Eden until we get right down to the New Jerusalem. All along, the ultimate sanctuary is in heaven. But on the earth, it's a good thing to have places set aside as visible sanctuaries. And we need land for that. That's what a church building is. It's not holier than any other place, but it is set aside as land that's a place to worship. It's legitimate for the church to own property, we could say, as a implication of that. So the first thing that land does is it is a place to worship. Secondly, land is a place to live. It's a home. It's a place that you can settle down, relax, sleep, take your shoes off. You don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to take dominion over it. You don't worship God in it in some formal way. It's a place to rest, a place to eat. It's a home. And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the land of Eden is the home that God established for man. The land of Eden. That's the place where Adam would live. On the Sabbath day, he would go to the Garden of Eden, the sanctuary land, and then come home to the land of Eden. And on the other days of the week, he would expand into and have dominion over the other places in the earth. And that's the third thing land is in the Bible. Land is a place to expand into and have dominion. It's the world. You don't live in the world. You leave your home and you go out into the world and you take dominion, you change things, you do things, and then you come home. And then on the Sabbath day, you go to the sanctuary and you come home. And then on Monday, you go out into the world and you take dominion and you expand. Now, gradually, the world becomes more and more of a homey place. And so there's kind of a historical transformation process where wilderness areas become cultivated and the world becomes more of a home for man to live in. But originally, there was just this one family living in the land of Eden as their home, and they would expand into the world. Now you begin to see what land means in the Bible. Man's original home was the land of Eden. And his original sanctuary was the Garden of Eden. Now, if we look at Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of man. And the first thing that God takes away from man when he rebels is not his home, and it's not the world that he can have dominion in. The first thing that is taken away from man as a consequence of sin is his sanctuary, his place of worship. That's the first thing people lose. That's the first thing that's lost in a civilization. You can see this principle at work in the United States and other places. When people rebel against God, the first thing they do is they leave the church. 
They may set up counterfeit churches, but they leave off the true church. They will go. Here, man is driven out from the sanctuary. Cherubim are placed there, and man is forbidden to go into the sanctuary. But he still has his home. He hasn't lost the land of Eden. That's where they live. We get to Genesis chapter 4, and we find that they were living in the land of Eden. They were settled there. They had a home. They brought their sacrifices to the gate of the Garden of Eden and offered them there. But in Genesis chapter 4, the sin of man progresses. And Cain not only loses the sanctuary, but he loses the home. He loses the second stage of land because we find that Cain is driven out from the presence of the Lord. And God says, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. In other words, before, when they lived in the land of Eden, it would be by the sweat of the brow that they would cultivate the ground, but the ground would yield good produce. Now, he says, it's even worse. You'll labor by the sweat of your brow, but you're not going to get very much for it. And second of all, you will be a vagrant and a wanderer, so there's no home left. You lose the sanctuary, the place of worship, and if you don't repent and sin gets worse generation by generation, then you lose your home. Did Cain repent? No. We find that the genealogy in chapter 4 shows seven generations of the line of Cain, and we get down to Lamech, the seventh, the seventh from Adam via Seth is Enoch, who walked with God and was real holy. And the seventh in the other direction is Lamech, a man who murders others. I have killed a man for wounding me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And we get a picture of total anarchy and social disorder. And what's happened? Men have lost the sanctuary, they've lost their home, and now they're destroying the one place left that they're wandering in, and that's the world. And so what happens in the flood in Genesis 6-8? through 8? The world is lost. Progression. Now, if we follow on, we'll find that God recreates the world after the flood. Now, there's one other point that we ought to make before we look at that. And that is that in Genesis chapter 1, God created the world first with the home in it, and then he put the sanctuary in it. Now, we would kind of expect it to be the other way around. But first of all, God would create the Garden of Eden, and then he would make the world. First of all, God would set up the church, so to speak, visibly, and then he'll create the world. But that is not what we find. We find the same thing here in Genesis chapter 10. We find after the flood, there's nothing about the establishment of a holy people or a priestly nation. Rather, the first thing after the flood is the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis 10, we have the recreation of the world and of homes. Seventy different homes in the total world package. But nothing about sanctuaries. And it's not until we get to Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham that God begins to build the sanctuary on the earth again. And that is a process that goes from Genesis 12 to Joshua 24, and then it's not complete. It actually goes all the way till David conquers Jerusalem and Abraham builds a stationary, non-wandering temple for God. And even that's not permanent. The world is built, and then the sanctuary is built visibly on the earth. 
Now that seems to go against everything else in the Bible, doesn't it? It says in John 4 that the Father seeks worshipers to worship Him. When Moses negotiates with Pharaoh, he says, Let my people go that they may worship me. It seems that worship and coming into the sanctuary is the first and most important thing, and all of your culture and civilization come out from that. And that's true. So why is it that in historical order, the visible world is set up first, and then the visible sanctuary is set up afterwards? I think the reason is, that you don't have to have a visible sanctuary. The true sanctuary is always in heaven. It was always there. Even before the Garden of Eden was made, there was a sanctuary, a holy place in heaven and in the hearts of men that they could worship. And even when the Garden of Eden was separated from humanity, people could still draw into heaven in their hearts and worship God. And so we're talking about the making visible the church making the sanctuary visible as a social institution, that comes in history after society begins to be transformed by the invisible sanctuary. And, of course, that's what's happened in church history. Look at the early church. They didn't have any meeting places except to meet in people's homes. They didn't have any visible sanctuaries and churches. The first thing they did was permeate the Roman Empire with the gospel and the invisible sanctuary. And then afterwards, after Christianity became accepted and was tolerated, then they could build visible sanctuaries. Now this is a theme that happens in the Bible and it's important for us. First of all, God makes the world and then he puts a visible sanctuary in the world. And that's the order here in Genesis and that's going to lead us into Abraham. Because Abraham is called to be a visible priest. He's called to do some things that others haven't done, and it's the beginning of the building of the sanctuary. And we're not going to find very much about socioeconomic dominion in Abraham. We're not going to find out whether Abraham was a great businessman, whether he did this or that. We know from indirect inferences in the text that he was. He was a powerful sheik in alliance with others, had thousands and thousands of servants and in his retinue. But there's not much about that in the text. What's important about Abraham is his priestly work. When we come on down to Jacob, and we find Jacob is beginning to take all kinds of dominion, but it'll start with the priestly work of Abraham, the preconditions for dominion. Well, we've looked at land. Land has these three meanings, sanctuary, home, and world. With Abraham... We'll see all of these. Abraham was looking for a city, which is a home. He also went around building altars, which are sanctuaries. And he took dominion over the land of Canaan, in a way, the land. And God promises him land, and Abraham begins to possess the land so that the world can be recreated in truth. That's the theme we'll look at. So, the theme of land. Now, secondly, there's the theme of priest. The priest is the guardian of the sanctuary. The priest is the guardian of the sanctuary. That's what priest means in the Bible. And ultimately, the guardian of the whole world. He guards the world by guarding the sanctuary. If my people who are called by my name will repent, then I will bless the whole land. If the church is guarded, then the land will prosper. 
if the church is not protected, then the land will fall apart too. And so the person who guards the sanctuary, and in the New Covenant, of course, that's everyone, every Christian, the guardians of the sanctuary ultimately guard the world. The world stands or falls with the righteous. We'll see that principle with Lot. Will you destroy the city if there are 50 righteous men? No, I won't destroy the city for 50 righteous men. If there are 50 righteous men guarding the sanctuary, then the whole city is spared. If there are 40 righteous men guarding the sanctuary, the city will be spared. If there are 30 men guarding the sanctuary, the city will be spared. And so forth and so on, all the way down until you get below a tithe, and then you've got to go. If there's ten, or if there's less than ten, if you don't have a tithe, then the righteous had better leave because the city's going to be destroyed. We'll start over somewhere else. The priest is the guardian of the sanctuary and ultimately of the world. Now, Adam was set up to be a priest in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. You know the old English word keep? What is a keep? The knights all retreated and went into the keep. Well, it's a fortress, right? A keep is a fortress. And the word keep means to guard. In Hebrew, it's identically the same. It's just that our tradition is so strong to use the old English that even modern translations say to cultivate and keep it. But it'd be better if they said guard, because obviously that's what's going on. Adam was supposed to guard the garden. And to anticipate something we'll say in just a minute, since his wife was put into the garden with him, he's supposed to guard her as well. Did he do it? No. The serpent came in, attacked Eve. Adam stood by and didn't do anything. Lost it all. He didn't guard the sanctuary. And as a result, the guardianship was transferred to cherubim. Now, what happens when man sins and refuses to guard the sanctuary? If he won't be God's priest and guard God's sanctuary, what does he do? These are inescapable things. Man was made to be a priest. So men will always be priests. And men were made to have some type of sanctuary and home. So they're going to always have some type of sanctuary and home. And if they won't be God's priests and guard God's sanctuary, then they will go out and make themselves priests and guard a false sanctuary. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain is sent out, he goes and builds a city. And he guards it, and he says that he will avenge anyone. He calls the city after the name of his son. We'll anticipate this in a minute, but this idea of name and son has to do with priest. The son is the priest, and the name is the name of the priest. When they want to set a name for themselves, that means they want to become identified as the rulers and the priests of society. And that's what happens here when this city is built. They make themselves false priests and create a false sanctuary. Now the interesting thing as we look at Genesis 3 down to the flood, in contrast with the rest of the Bible, is that we don't see God setting up any type of sanctuary or church on the earth during this time. Obviously people did worship God. We know that they brought their sacrifices to the gate of the Garden of Eden. It says so in Genesis 4. And we have a list of righteous men who worship God wherever they live. But no new visible sanctuary was established. Now that does happen after the flood. 
Abraham is called. He lives in the land. And the people go down into Egypt and they come out and they build a tabernacle. And they carry it and they put it at Shechem and then they put it at Shiloh. And there's a visible sanctuary, something you can see and touch and feel and go to. And then they build the temple and it's there. But during the time before the flood, God allowed the world to take its course. He let sin take its course and men didn't repent. Now what happens after the flood? Before God builds his sanctuary, the wicked build their own, just like with Cain. And that's what the Tower of Babel is about. We'll look at that in more detail in a few minutes. But in the Tower of Babel after the flood, the first thing they do is they build a city and a tower to make a name for themselves. And those are all the things that God promises Abraham in chapter 12. The Tower of Babel is real important background for the story of Abraham. Now, we can see Abraham as a priest in at least four different ways. In the first place, Abraham is a guardian of the land. When Chedor Laomer comes and invades it and causes trouble, Abraham guards and protects the land. That's priestly work. He knows the boundaries, he has some dominion over it, and he guards and protects it. We'll see that. Secondly, Abraham is a priest in that he rescues Lot. He delivers his kin. He protects the people that are in the land under his authority and dominion, under his priesthood. third way in which we'll see Abraham as a priest is that he leads the Gentiles in worship. That's what a priest does. The Aaronic priests led the Israelites in worship, but the Israelites were to lead the Gentiles in worship. And we'll see Abraham leading Gentiles in worship. And that's priestly work. And then a fourth way in which we'll see him acting as a priest is in passing judgment. There'll be times when Abraham has to pass judgment on the wicked, just as Adam was supposed to pass judgment and kick the serpent out of the garden. Part of guarding the land is to pass judgment. So we'll we'll want to watch the theme of land, and we'll also want to watch the theme of Abraham as a priest, guardian of the sanctuary. A third theme that we'll see is real important in the life of Abraham is the theme of the bride. The bride is in the garden, and so she has to be guarded by the priest. That's a theme throughout the Bible. In fact, because the bride is in the garden, the language in the Bible is used to symbolize the garden. If you think of the Song of Solomon, you'll remember that the woman is described in all this garden language. And she's said to be in a garden with walls all around it. And her brothers guard her. And then she's transferred to Solomon as her husband who will guard her. So the church is also spoken of as a bride guarded by Jesus Christ, the high priest. That theme is throughout the Bible. The bride is in the garden. She has to be guarded by the priest. Now, what happens? Satan wants the bride so that he can raise up unholy seed. Satan wants to invade the garden and possess the woman so that he can raise up unholy seed and corrupt the entire process of history. And this is what happens, spiritually speaking. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we read... Paul says to the church at Corinth, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, 
that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The serpent deceiving Eve is like adultery. It's spiritual adultery. And as a result, when Eve has children, the children are wicked. Cain is wicked. Abel was not. But some of the children that are born are of their father, the devil. Language the Bible uses. Now, we know this isn't literal. But it's spiritual adultery, spiritual paternity. They're of their father, the devil. And that's why Satan wants the bride. He wants to corrupt the human race morally, not genetically, and cause the human race to defy God and defile the world. So, Satan attacks the bride in the garden, and Adam fails to protect her. Now, we're going to watch that happen in the life of Abraham, and it happens more than once. Satan attacks the bride. Pharaoh attacks Sarah. Abimelech attacks Sarah, and Abraham has to figure out ways to protect her from these attacks. When God passed judgment on man after Adam's sin, one of the things he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. We're so used to thinking about the enmity between the seeds and Jesus Christ, we neglect the fact that it says I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Satan not only attacks the seed, he also attacks the woman herself. And there is in the Bible a theme of the war of the bride versus Satan. And that will be an important theme in the life of Abraham. Satan does attack the seed. He attacks the children. He tried to kill Christ when Christ was born. He tried to wipe out all the Jewish babies under Pharaoh. We can trace that theme through the Bible. But he also just plain attacks the woman herself so that he can possess her. Abraham will have to act as a guard to protect Sarah and we'll look at that theme. A fourth theme that we'll look at is that of the seed. The seed is the new Adam, the hope of the world. A new Adam. Adam was the priest for all humanity. There needs to be a new super priest for all humanity. And the seed that's promised is going to be that new Adam. Now just as Satan wars against the bride, so Satan wars against the seed. He wants to capture the seed or else kill him. Capture the seed means this, to get the child out of the Christian home and environment and get him over into a satanic environment, to program the seed. If Satan fails to rape the bride spiritually and corrupt the mother, so the mother brings up bad children, then he wants to steal the child away from a good mother and put the child in a bad environment. Remember Daniel chapter 1. That's what's going on there. That was the attempt on the part of Satan to re-educate the seed and to get the seed into his camp. That's what's going on today with the persecution of Christian schools. You would think that the secularists out there would just leave Christian schools alone. Why don't they have their public schools and just leave ours alone? And yet we all know that Christian schools get attacked and attacked and attacked in various times and places. Why? Well, because Satan behind these people wants to get the seed and corrupt it. 
get the children away from the Christians. Of course, that goes on in the Soviet Union. Well, that goes on in the Bible, too. If we can't get Sarah, then we'll have to try to get Isaac. And if we can't capture the seed, then we kill the seed. Kind of what happened there with Pharaoh in Egypt. Apparently, all these Jewish children that were being born were being somewhat loyal, at least, to the ways of the Lord. And so Satan moved to start killing them all. If you can't convert them, then you got to kill them. That's Satan's attitude. So that's the war against the seed, and it goes on and on throughout history. Now the problem that we'll find in the book of Genesis is that because of sin, the bride is barren and the seed can't even be born to start with. Now if the mother can't ever have any children, if she's sterile or barren, then where are you going to get the seed from to be the new Adam? That's the big problem. Sarah's barren. Rebecca is barren. Rachel is barren. All the wives of the patriarchs through whom the seed is supposed to come turn out to be barren. And we'll have to look at what happens. So that theme is very important. Where will the seed come from? Who is the seed? Is Lot the seed? Lot turns out not to be the seed in the air. Well, how about the servant of Abraham? He turns out not to be the seed in the air. Well, then we have Ishmael. Ishmael turns out not to be the seed in the air. Is Isaac. But at every point, we have this decision as to who is going to be the heir, who is going to take over the priestly mantle from Abraham, who is going to be the seed. And it's Isaac. When Isaac gets married to Rebekah, then he becomes the priest and Abraham steps out of the picture. Abraham goes, gets another wife and has a bunch of kids, but he doesn't do his priestly work anymore. He retires, goes out and starts having dominion. And Isaac takes on the priestly robe once he gets married. And we'll look at that. Now, there's one other major theme that's real important to the Abraham story that we want to look at, and that is that the life of Abraham is a preview of history. It's a prophecy. What happens to Abraham will happen later on to Israel. Incident after incident, what happens to Abraham will happen later on to Israel. And it's written down so that Israel can meditate on it and learn from it. Abraham's going to be captured by the Egyptians who will attack Sarah and then God will deliver him out of Egypt with much spoil. And then in chapter 13, he'll travel through this wilderness with Lot, and Lot will get into a conflict with him, and Lot will fall by the way in the wilderness, and then Abraham will come back into the land, and in chapter 14, he will fight a series of battles against Chedor Laomer, which turn out to be all exact same people that Joshua is going to face later on, and he will exercise dominion and basically conquer the land. And the people that are listed in Genesis chapter 14 that Abraham defeats are the same people that are listed over in Numbers chapter 13 that the Israelites were so scared of. Remember the Israelites got up to the border of the land and sent spies in and they came out and they said, we're like grasshoppers in the eyes of these people. We can never defeat them. Well, they're the same people Abraham had already defeated. The same geographical locations that Abraham had already fought at. That's all in Genesis 14. It's a prophecy that the Israelites should have learned from, but they didn't. But then, of course, the time wasn't right to actually give Abraham the land, and so in chapter 15, we have the theme of patience and perseverance come in. We'll look at all of this, but the incidents in Abraham's life are pre-capitulations. They're proleptic. These are big words to mean they are prophecies of what will happen later on. And you see, after Abraham conquers the land, then he begins to have a ministry to the Gentiles. And that's what Israel is supposed to do, too. Once they conquer the land and are established, they begin to have a ministry to the Gentiles. 
So those are the five things that we'll really focus in on in our study of Abraham. Land, priesthood, the bride, Sarah, the seed, who is it, Ishmael, Isaac, Lot, who is it, and then this preview of history. And we'll try to keep abreast of these themes as we go through the next 11 weeks. Now let's get a running start and look at the immediate background to the life of Abraham. The first passage we need to look at very briefly is Genesis chapter 9, the sin of Ham. Why? Because there's a curse on Canaan to become a servant, and Abraham is going to be put into the land of Canaan, and he will start exercising dominion over the Canaanites, and eventually the priestly nation will go in and wipe out the Canaanites. So we need to take a quick look at this. Starting in verse 20 of Genesis 9, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and uncovered himself in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Now, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was not good that the man should be alone. This seeing in the Bible has an idea of judgment and evaluation. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and then went and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their fathers, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Knowledge in the Bible is also a pregnant concept, so that knowledge has to do with evaluation. He judged the youngest son. He knew, and he acted in terms of it. Now, what was Ham's sin? There's speculation goes on about this, but there's really no need to. Ham's sin was in invading his father's privacy, spying him out, and then bringing a bad report against the person who was a God-ordained authority over him. And basically what Ham was trying to do was to solicit his two brothers into some type of a conspiracy or attack on this authority because he wanted to take the office for himself. The passage makes that plain in that the curse that's put on Ham is a curse to become a slave. It's the reverse of what he was actually trying to do under the eye-for-eye principle. You want to make yourself a ruler, then you'll become a servant. If you make yourself a servant, then you'll become a ruler, says the Bible. You'll notice that Shem and Japheth refused even to see what they've been told about. They upheld the office. They walked backwards with the robe and put the robe of office back on their father, on the authority. They upheld the authority. Now, we don't know. I'm inclined to think that there's nothing actually in the text that indicates that Noah was committing some big sin of drunkenness here. It only actually says he drank of the wine and became drunk, which doesn't necessarily have a strong idea in Hebrew, in other words, he got sleepy and he got hot and he pulled his robe off, but he was still inside the tent in his privacy and it was nobody's business. Ham actually invades this privacy and then seeks to replace his father as a ruler. The essence of Ham's sin was an attack on God-ordained authority and an attempt to set himself up as the authority. And the curse, the true sons of Ham... Canaan, his other sons were apparently not like this, but Ham's son Canaan was like his father, and they would become slaves. People who 
put themselves in power by rebellion become slaves. Now, the important thing here is that this curse is progressive in history. Rebellion gets worse and worse as time goes along. It goes down from generation to generation if it's not checked. God says that he will check it, that he will stop the sin of man in his youth which he didn't do before the flood. He let sin mature all the way out to the end. But he says, man is sinful from his youth, and I will stop it in the youth, and I will give a new chance for humanity. But here, the theme is still true that it's progressive down through the years and down through the centuries. Rebellion gets worse and worse as time goes along, and rebellion destroys dominion because it eliminates the preconditions for dominion. It's impossible for leaders to accomplish anything with rebellious people. Ultimately, therefore, the Canaanites would lose their land. They were given land, but because of a rebellious temperament that they take up from Ham and a revolutionary kind of government where each government is always subject to being overthrown by a new one, they will lose their land. You can't have dominion there. I read an interview with the chief of the Zulu tribe in the Republic of South Africa is named Buthalese. He's been in the news on and off because he is, of course, opposed to apartheid, but he's also very much opposed to sanctions against South Africa and to any type of revolutionary action. And in the interview in Insight magazine, Buthalese says that in every country in Africa where there was a revolution, there's nothing but social chaos because there's just one revolution after another. One strong man comes in, and he's terrified that somebody's going to revolt against him. He uses a strong arm, and sure enough, somebody does revolt against him. It sets a pattern. Of course, the Zulus tried this a couple of times and lost out, so Buthalese is looking at history and saying, let's not do this again. And he's quite insistent on his radical friends and brethren that they need to cool it and appeal to the government and go for a peaceful transition out of apartheid. Because he says, if we have a violent revolution, then it will never end. Now what happens in Genesis chapter 14 is that we see the Canaanites rebel. They were already under the dominion of Chedor Laomer, a Shemite, and they rebel against him. And they aren't successful, and they come out even worse than they were before. But that theme will be important to the narrative of Abraham. The Canaanites are going to be replaced, and we begin to see it with Abraham's story itself. He begins to replace them and take dominion over them. And they begin to be servants. On the other hand, those who upheld the authority, even when it did something questionable or they heard a bad report, it says that they are enlarged. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, that is, worship the true God, and let Canaan be his servant. So whether it's on the job or in the civil government or anywhere else, if we show respect to the office, if not to the man, at least to the office, and uphold the office and try to cooperate with authorities, the principle is that you are enlarged. Whereas if you rebel against authorities, then you destroy the very preconditions for dominion, and you can't have any type of leadership. That's the first theme that comes up here as immediate background. We'll see with Abraham, Abraham begins to conquer the Canaanites. The second thing that we need to look at is the Tower of Babel, because that also sets up important themes. It's in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Bad translation, it says the whole earth was of one lip and one tongue, or one vocabulary. 
That means one confession. The expression one lip means one religious confession throughout the Bible, and that's what it means here. They did have the same language. It says they had the same vocabulary. Now, the whole earth had the same confession. They worshipped the same false god and had the same vocabulary. They all spoke the same language. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let's make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Okay. The city is a counterfeit home. And the tower that reaches to heaven is a counterfeit sanctuary. Now, this is the way cities were built in the ancient world. You built a wall around your city, and that was the outer wall of the outer city. And then in the highest place of the city, you built a citadel, or a tower, a fortress. And that had another wall around it, and usually another gate. And you would ascend up. Cities were built on hills usually because it was easier to defend them. You'd ascend up, and you'd go through the main gate into the outer city, where all the shops and homes and everything were. And then you would go up, and if you had business with the king or with the high priest or with the military authorities, then you might have to go up into the inner city through the inner wall. And that was the tower area, the sanctuary. Of course, if there was a big war and the outer city fell, then the people that were in the inner city still might hold out even longer. So it's all very practical, but it also reveals the nature of the world as God designed it. You have a false home and a false sanctuary, and making a name for themselves meant that they were making themselves priests, setting themselves up as priests. Now that's important because we'll see in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation, I will make your name great. Now that comes, you see, immediately after God thwarting this attempt of men to make their own names and make themselves priests. You'll notice that there aren't any names mentioned here. So much for making a name for yourself. We know from kind of comparing text with text that Nimrod was the leader of this deal. If you look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, it says that he started Babel, which was in the land of Shinar. But his name isn't mentioned here. So much for making your name great. Well, this is a humorous passage. It says that this tower that was going to reach all the way up into heaven, the Lord thought he saw something way down on the earth but wasn't sure what it was. And Gabriel said, I think they are trying to build something big down there. So the Lord came down and finally was able to see this huge tower that the sons of man had built. That's all satire. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one and they have the same confession. And this is what they begin to do, and now nothing they purpose to do will be impossible for them. It's strength in unity. Come, let us go down and confuse their confessions so that they may not understand one another's confessions. And so the Lord creates many different religions, all of which believe the same thing but use different names. Some of them worship Molech. Some of them worship Malcolm. Some of them worship Baal. Some of them worship Asherah. Some of them worship Jove. Some of them worship Jupiter. Some of them worship Zeus. They're basically the same false religion, and yet they're different slightly, and they all fight among each other, and that's what the Lord wanted. He confused their religious confessions and simultaneously their vocabularies and languages. So the Lord scattered them abroad, and they stopped building the city. Now, 
They're scattered abroad. What does God do with Abraham? He calls him and gathers him to the Holy Land. So scattering versus gathering is a theme that is set up here for the history of Abraham. God scatters the builders of the Tower of Babel to prevent them from having unity and power. But he gathers Abraham and his people close to himself, close to Melchizedek, so that he can learn wisdom, so that he can be established and have power in the land. Finally, the passage leads up with the genealogy of Shem, which is in Genesis 11:10 to 26. And we have a list of Shem and how many years he lived, and he had a son named Arpaxad, and other sons and daughters, and Arpaxad lived 35 years, and begat Shelah, and Shelah had other sons and daughters, and he lived 30 years, and begat Eber, and Eber begat Peleg, and Peleg begat Reu, and so forth and so on. What's going on here? Well, a number of different things. We have a chronology of history. We have a genealogy. But notice all the names. I think that's what we want to call attention to here. In terms of immediate background, these guys all have names. They're all listed. They were the priestly line, and God made names for them and recorded their names in the Bible. The names of the people who built the Tower of Babel, they're not recorded. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and their name's been forgotten. The only place that there is any record of any name is the Bible itself. If Nimrod was involved, we know that from the Bible. Their own records don't exist. But the Bible lists all the names of the righteous here, and you know that's a theme in the Bible. If you remember the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, if you sat down and read those recently, remember their whole chapters with nothing but lists of names? Kind of skip over them because who can pronounce all those names? And all those names are listed there. Because God made them names and established them. God is doing that here. That's the theme. These are the important names of godly people, and they're recorded and they're listed because God made them a name. They're the priestly line. That's what stands out in this section, is the names. And that's what Abraham will be given. Abraham will stand right in that line, and God will make his name great. Well... All right, that's the immediate background to the story. Next time, if you want to read in advance, we'll start in chapter 11, verse 27, and we'll go through chapter 12. And we'll see that Abraham is called out, that his wife is barren, she doesn't have any children, and then Abraham comes into the land and sets up priestly worship at several important key places. And then because of a famine, he goes down to Egypt, and Satan attacks the bride And Abraham is delivered from Egypt in an exodus with great spoils. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.